Hello, everybody, and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, a special bonus episode this week. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And this week, usually, you know, we're looking at uh, the best Oscar races and determining if the right film won. And for our bonus episode, we look at some supplemental films that were not nominated for Best Picture, but maybe should have been. And this week, we are still focusing on films that came out in 1991. Do you want to talk about our uh, first movie that we're talking about? Uh, I forgot what order we're going to go in already. Give me a hint. Context clues would be appreciated. It stars Thelma and Louise. Oh, okay. Yes. 1991's Thelma and Louise, directed by Ridley Scott and produced by MGM. Synopsis. Two best friends set out on an adventure, but it soon turns around to a terrifying escape from being hunted by the police as these two girls escape for the crimes they committed. That's like a poorly written synopsis, but it is accurate. I think you should write our synopsises from here on out. Our I, synopsi. I like judging IMDb synopsi. Okay. You know what? I'm going to write my own synopsi from here on out then. Okay. We'll see if that happens, guys. <laughs> You're right. Every time I say something, I'm going to do it. Don't do it. You want to hear some back- But you know what? Watching all these movies is enough, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I do like a lot more. But that's cool. Less, I, I edit these. You Don't do. say anything. You do. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So some background <laughs> about Thelma and Louise. Uh, Callie Kahori, who wrote the screenplay, first conceived of the project in 1979. She was hired by Ridley Scott for a project called Thelma and Louise around 1980. And Ridley Scott was going to produce and Kahuri was going to direct. But they were turned down by many studios until MGM purchased the rights in 1981. But Kahuri was not ready to direct the film, so Scott was going to direct it. Uh, The film was originally announced in 1981 for a 1983 release. Obviously, that didn't happen. Originally, Scott and Kahuri wanted Natalie Wood for Thelma and Tuesday Weld as Louise. However, Natalie Wood uh, drowned in 1981 and Weld quickly dropped out from the project, which is why it kind of stalled. I don't even know who that is. I don't know who that is either. Cool name. Yeah. Um, And so obviously there was kind of like floating around Hollywood for a long time. And so like basically every working actress at some point or another was like attached to it at some point but some notable duos that were attached to the project at one time or another goldie hawn and meryl streep damn michelle pfeiffer and jodie foster damn and personally kelly kahuri hoped to cast holly hunter and francis mcdormand that would have been amazing i mean all of those would have been good honestly no you know what holly hunter and francis mcdormand would have like like that's my preferred cast and i've seen them you know that's not fair. I, I, think don't, mean, I don't mean. I don't mean even mean. I think they're great, but like, holy shit, would I like recast that in a second with those two? Mm-hmm. Never even thought about it until right now. You brought it up, so you can't be mad at me. Well, I mean, it was just like a thing that. Well, it's a thing no one wanted. knew about except for you. So, but I feel like with Holly Hunter and Francis McDormand, then it sounds like it's something the Coen brothers should have directed. That's true. Actually, <laughs> that's true. Um, one one little thing I found interesting. My final little thing. Uh, With the light starting to fail and a public holiday looming, Ridley Scott had roughly 45 minutes to shoot the final scene of the film. Whoa. Which he did, obviously. Yeah. And it looks good. Pressure creates diamonds, right? Yes. (laughs) That is so, so true. 
Are you want to talk to me about Thelma and Louise? Do you know now they can just like create diamonds in a room? Maybe I shouldn't tell you that because that's clearly the way I'm going to go when buying you a ring. I want a blood diamond. <laughs> no, but seriously, like there's a local jewelry company that's like advertising that's like, oh, it's real diamonds. Just like ice in your fridge is real ice. They're like, the, our, made, our diamonds we make are just as real as diamonds from the ground. So what do, what do you mean in a room? Like do they I don't take know if it's actually coal and then just like... I don't know what it is. I imagine it's some kind of pressure system, yeah. Hmm. They just it's like, like speed it's up the real process. diamonds. Yeah, it's real diamonds. It's just you're paying a lot less for them because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot less uh, blood gas bill <laughs> getting your diamonds. Sure. We can get conflict free diamonds. Sure. They cost a lot more. Yeah, they're right? a lot more expensive. Diamonds is such like a fucked up business. Like the more you think it's just like really messed up. actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody wants them. Do you want to talk? Keep talking about diamonds, or do you want to talk about Thelma and Louise? <laughs> Listen, Thelma and Louise is from 1991. Diamonds yes. are forever. So we're gonna keep talking about diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about diamonds forever. So the De Beers Company original. Who's that? They're like the biggest diamond company in the world. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They have like basically own like a monopoly on all diamonds. I'm just kidding. Stop talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know about uh, diamonds. Okay, so Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Did you like Thelma and Louise, Kyle? It was fantastic. Yeah. You'd it, seen it before, right? I, well, yeah, as a child, I guess yeah. I, I like, used to watch it all the time. Um, in fact, uh, Susan Sarandon, I remember, like, I constantly thought, like, was my granny. That's funny. Because, uh, honestly, they look kind of alike. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, dressed just as tacky. Uh, Stop it. Your grandma's not tacky. Well, she was tacky. She was not. She was kind of tacky. Gaudy. She was fabulous. Gaudy. See, yeah, you would say that. <laughs> no, she did. She she was she dressed for her personality for sure. Um Yeah, I mean, dude, fucking fist up to women everywhere for uh for this movie. Like it felt ahead of its time and yet like forgotten <laughs> in a way. It's like, why don't mm-hmm. we still make movies like this with these kind of characters? With like two women, you right. mean? <laughs> well, you know what I mean, yeah. Uh, it just felt like this is a step in the right direction, watching it in 2018. But like, wh- right. what did it feel like in 1991? No idea. Um, I imagine it felt pretty awesome. But then why did we not see more like it, I guess, mm-hmm. after it? Not like more, obviously, just like that plot. But just but like, like with two But yeah, I mean, the last several so. years, outside of even just the diversity among races... There's been a lot of talks about like just yeah gender roles in in Hollywood and it's just like women don't get a lot of big parts like TV is doing a little better but mm-hmm. um, for a movie that kicked so much ass and did so well in the year and you know it's like a classic mm-hmm. considered a classic amongst many yeah it's just surprised like they just kind of had this huge hit and it's just like the epitome of fucking feminism in a movie from 1991 I don't know it's just like. Mm-hmm. It's like inspiring and like disheartening at the same time. Because like, why yeah. don't we just keep this fucking ball of awesomeness rolling? You know, that's interesting. I listened to uh, the podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I can't think of what it's called right now. Revisionist history, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like the first episode I listened to kind of like touches on that kind of surgery. He's talking about this woman. I don't know any of the facts here. So this is going to be go listen to that podcast because it's beautiful. But um. There was this painter, there was like the National Gallery in London, which is like the most prestigious art gallery that you can be in and whatever. And like in the, in some long, long time ago, they like let this woman in and everyone was like, 
She was the first woman to have her painting hung in the National Gallery. And everyone was like, this is, you know, a landmark moment for women and, you know, moving forward and empowerment and progress and blah, blah, blah. And then they, like, didn't let another woman in for, like, decades. And it's like, he's talking about, it's like this, um, this phenomenon that happens over and over again where people, like, open the door a tiny bit and then they're like well we did that we don't have to do it again and then they can go back to being like excluded again and that's happened to women like over and over and over again and so i feel like this is like somewhat similar to that where there was this movie where you have these two two strong female leads if you want to talk about like bechdel tests and shit like clearly this passes it like you have two strong characters they're like complex characters they're not you know they're flawed people for sure um, but they're compelling and dynamic and it's this movie that that is ultimately like a middle finger to patriarchal things that designed to abuse women. Right. These like systems and cultures that, you know, of catcalling of people not believing women of that sort of yeah. thing. Rape but, culture. Rape culture for sure. It's like a middle finger to all that. And it has gone down as a classic and all this stuff and yet they're it's ta- it feels like it feels of the moment now because we're back we're in that place now where we're like oh hey women get cheated really shittily and we should like do something about that but you know what i mean like this was you know 20 something years ago yeah and then it's like heartbreaking that right but i feel like that's the thing that was thought, like probably thought like this for a minute in 1991 right exactly and yeah then they were like oh yeah we saw that and now we're women are in movies and we don't have to worry about it anymore because right. they they had Don and Louise and so now we can just go back to Right. Not not doing that. So again, it's just like this awesome movie that makes you like feel good and feel empowered. And then it's like at the same time, it's like, well, this shit came out like 26 fucking years ago. Mm-hmm. And not much has changed. Right. Mm. Yeah, it is upsetting. But um, as a movie, it's like a fantastic movie. Yes, it is. Outside of all of the the outside things forcing their way into the conversation you know what i mean like there's so much in the culture that like has that needs to be talked about when you talk about thumb and louise just to like put it in context and stuff but just like looking at it as a piece of filmmaking like it's just really good gina davis and susan sarandon are fantastic they have good chemistry together they have great chemistry and shot well i love when uh we were talking about the other day the the difference between the you know the male gaze and what what could possibly be the female gaze yeah and then brad pitt comes on screen and, is like, and they do that takes like slow shirt. pan yeah. of his ab and i said and that like, is the female yeah. gaze. <laughs> although then it immediately switched to like just like gina davis's crotch and i was like oh we're back to the male gaze again <laughs> but uh i mean like tribute has to be paid to brad pitt in this movie as well though too so it's like his star making turn yeah and you know what? He's, uh, he's a good ass role. He like eats out every scene he's in. Yeah. He's really good. He's also, beautiful. I really like uh, uh, Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen was good in this, for he, sure. He was just, again, it just was interesting in every kind of scene he was in. Really, all the actors were pretty fucking good. They were. The I, I don't remember his name. He's been in like every little thing in the world. But the dude who plays Luisa's husband. Oh, yeah. Or is it Thelma's that. husband? Thelma's husband, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thelma's Gina Davis is Thelma. Right? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. This guy is just the epitome of what you hate in men. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, like embodied this- in one character that is just like it is. He's sometimes like laugh out loud funny with how ridiculous he is. Well, I feel like I feel like all the men that they come across are like representative of like the different types yeah, of men that like for sure. You got like the shitty husband who doesn't care about his wife. You have the straight up rapist. You have Brad Pitt who like uses them and steals from mm-hmm. them. And you got well, Michael Madsen actually isn't that well. He like turns on them and he like turns them over to the FBI It'll without t- much like yeah. convincing. Well, I mean. <laughs> He still helped out. He's anyway, he was he was the best one. And but then he was like ill tempered, like but like a good guy. He was a good guy. So because I mean, not all men, right? Hashtag not all men. And then you've got the. Um, Why'd you say that? That's like a thing where men like barge into like women talking about being abused. And they're like not all men. <laughs> I know. I just surprised you said it. Well, I was saying it sarcastically. I know. I know. I know. And then you got the like truck driver guy who's like catcalling them, and oh. And then there's all the police who like. Aren't you? There's the one police officer who's like, these girls need to be protected. Like we need yeah, to like Harvey Keitel plays like great, right? And then the rest of them are just like, fuck them, fuck yeah. And they, I mean, like that's what I'm saying. This movie, or look how horrible these women are being. It's like, right, right. When it's like no consideration is paid to like well, what they probably went like, through. Yeah, I mean, I know they killed a guy. He was raped, but they like, have like good reason to believe that like it. You know, they would have been fine. And then well, they arm a store, and all of a sudden we have to have like every police officer in the in the state of Oklahoma. It after is like them. a crazy like we're yeah, like that was a good day to commit other crimes <laughs> because all the police were there for them. Yeah, but I do think like it is like very telling that this, the whole like plot of this movie is that like these women would rather drive off a cliff than have to try to convince these men that they were raped. <laughs> They like know for a fact these men will not believe that they were raped, and so they're like, "I guess we'll just drive off a cliff." I don't know if that's all they were saying with that, <laughs> but uh, I mean that's what no, it boils no, it down take to. Away. No, I like that. I like that. Damn <clears throat> good movie. It is a damn good movie. It holds up. It re- well, it does because I feel like you know you were saying like it's ahead of its time, and you said that when we watched, it, and I said like it isn't ahead of its time. It's just that this is what it's always been like this for women for so long that it can feel it was of its time in 1991 and it's still right. of its time now. Um, Which again is like a double-edged sword. Right. And again, like I feel like we're making this very like heavy and like, well, blah, blah, blah. Like Thelma Louise is like a fun movie. It's like, a yeah, you know, that is true. It's, it's like a great. fist pump. No, I talked about the ex, the, the husband who's just, hilarious. yeah, he's funny, but I'm just saying like in general, it's like, it's, they take like a, a generic like buddy road movie and just like make it women and make their plates yeah. the plates of women. And then that's the movie you get. I didn't read any trivia, but like I felt very much that like there was probably more FBI stuff. Yeah. Shot. I think there was. And then it just clearly was like cut out. Cause they were like, what are we doing? This is right. about them. No one cares about no, these no, men. Yeah, exactly. Cause just those scenes, they, they always felt like they cut off. Yeah, there's some they, weird editing. Yeah, there's there. some weird editing going on with all the FBI stuff. But uh Steven Tobolowski, man. Yeah. Always popping up when you least expect him. <laughs> He's like herpes. <laughs> Just shows up. You know, you don't know, you don't want him. That was a bad analogy. It was. I'll take it back. I'm not gonna edit it out because that'll be a pain, but Okay, that's fair. It'll just you know, people. Hopefully Steven Tobolowski never listens to this. Yeah, I mean he doesn't care. <laughs> All right, well, do you have anything else you want to say about them, Louise? I don't. All right, well, let me tell you what some other people think about it. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 82% and a critic score of 84%. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute, on their list of the 100 greatest thrills, 
ranked it at number 76 on their list of 100 cheers. They ranked it at number 78 on their list of heroes and villains. Thelma and Louise together were named the number 24 heroes. The writers guild of America made a list of the 100 best screenplays and ranked Thelma and Louise at number 72. And in 2016, it was preserved in the national film registry. At the box office, it made $45.4 million. Damn. So there you go. Sounds good. I don't know if that is good. Sounds like a shitty opening weekend these days, but like... Yeah. I'm sure that's a decent amount of money back then, right? I think it was probably pretty decent. Like, it wasn't in the top 10 or anything for the year. Really? I really do feel like it's a movie that, like, gained popularity on home video. video, Yeah, yeah. I could see that. But it was, like, one of the biggest home video releases. Mm Mm-hmm. Right on. All right. Now let's talk about Barton Fink. The real best picture of the year. Kyle's pick for this episode. Yeah, <clears throat> rub it in. Uh, directed by Joel Cohen and produced by Circle Films and Working Title Films. Not the powerhouses we're used to saying there. <laughs> Synopsis. A renowned New York playwright is enticed to California to write for the movies and discovers the hellish truth of Hollywood. Here's some background for you. <laughs> Who wrote that? IMDb wrote that. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, the Coens, the Cohen brothers wrote the screenplay for Barton Fink in three weeks while experiencing difficulty during the writing of Miller's Crossing. <clears throat> they began filming the former soon after Miller's Crossing was finished. Barton Fink had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1991, and in a rare sweep, it won the Palme d'Or. Yeah, as well as awards for Best Director and Best Actor. Like, usually they spread those awards around, mm-hmm. but they gave all three to Barton Fink. French loved it, is what I'm saying. Okay. The film garnered mostly positive reviews, but was a box office bomb, grossing only $6 million compared to a budget of $9 million. Ooh. Um, in 2016, oh, this is a fun, this is a fun fact. This will qualify to you as a fun fact. Cool. Are you ready? <clears throat> In 2016, when asked what movie he'd take with him to a deserted island, Charlie Kaufman said Barton Fink. Wow. Because he said that it it would give him a lot to think about while he was there. Charlie Kaufman should take any of his own fucking movies. (laughs) He understands his movies, (laughs) supposedly, presumably. Someone does. (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, Yeah. So I'm just saying Charlie Kaufman needs See, time on a deserted island to understand Barton Fink. I feel like Barton Fink is not as complicated in its intentions as some may try to read it. Like, I think it's actually, like, I think it's one of those things, that's, it's open for interpretation. Like, it really is. Very, very mm-hmm. well very well done. But I think, personally, like, at its core, it's just about, like, probably what they were going through at the time. Like, kind of going from these super independent, you know, guys or whatever, gaining huge popularity with something like Raising Arizona. Um, I don't know, went from a crime movie to, like, Raising Arizona, then Miller's Crossing. Like, I just feel like they were trying to write from a perspective that's, like, we could just sell out and write anything, but that would be, like, selling our souls. It wouldn't be making us who we are. And I feel like that's what the character of Barton Fink is. It's imagining this, like, alternative reality of I don't know historical Hollywood um, which I think they were probably really interested in I clearly have been with stuff like Hail Caesar and whatnot. Mm -hmm. but I just feel like it was 
it was pretty obvious, I thought. But I could see like they're trying to like be have more subtext. See, like to me, I never saw him as selling out though. He never once did what he, they wanted him to do. He but, continued writing. But the fact that he even he, he immediately is like, I don't want to do this. This is not me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm here in New York. I'm a New York writer. I'm writing about the fucking common man, working man, blah blah blah. And this guy's like, you need to go. It's money. And then the next scene, he's checking into a hotel in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also like making, I feel like the movie is making a lot of points as part of the problem. It's like trying to say a lot. Yeah. But I think like because part of the thing too, he's like, he's like, I write about the common man and I'm mm-hmm. like shining a light on blah, blah, blah. But like, he just, he doesn't know anything about the common man. And right. like when, when John Goodman is trying to like, talk to him about being a common man he just like keeps talking over him and being like yeah he's like so absorbed in his own bullshit he's so up his own ass that he like yeah. doesn't he doesn't know what he's talking about which i yeah. feel like is part of the point too yeah. so I don't, you know what i mean like i don't know how that if that's selling out because he was never writing about something true he was never writing about something sorry that he i guess it's not knew. sorry i meant like okay you're right selling out implies that like a great artist sold out to make money Sorry, I meant it more in like a way that's like he, like he just took the easiest route. Like, mm-hmm. yes, he's all about his own bullshit. He's like very even like snobby about it, right? Like right. He's, he's playing, he's playing your typical like starving artist. You know what I mean? But he gets a little bit of success, and he just he just jumps the gun rather than thinking about what's the best thing for me right now. Well, and I think, too, he's, like, super obsessed with, like, portraying himself as a starving artist. Like, the studio yeah. says they would put him up in a nice hotel. And he's like, no, I want to stay here in this hotel. And, you know, I think it's interesting you're talking about, like, the Coen brothers kind of, like, this being, like, a metaphor for what they were going through at the time. Because I feel like it's very true. Like, Raising Arizona is very much about, like, blue-collar yeah. people. And, like, I don't know a lot about the Coens, but I'm going to assume that they, like, aren't like the characters in Raising Arizona. Do right. you know what I, I mean? Think like, they just find these character types interesting. But I wonder if they were like dealing with that thing of like, I don't know these people and I wrote about these yeah. people, but like that's not our life, you know? Could be. Very that's well could be. They write about dumb criminals and yeah. in different places all around the country, which not But it's mostly from. like, yeah, it's like stupid, like, well, I don't want to say stupid. It's just like they're uneducated people usually yeah. in like yeah. small town. Like I've never... There's not a lot of Coen Brothers. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of Coen Brothers movies I haven't seen, so I'm not going to like use a blanket <laughs> yeah. statement. But Probably a lot, yeah. I feel like there's more Coen Brothers movies that I know that don't seem reflective of who they are as people right. than there are ones that are. And I feel like this this is one that's more reflective of who they are, right. for sure. I agree. I agree. I think I think they're, they're, they're just a, a very interesting dynamic because I really think they find characters, like they think of characters and they fall in love with them and then they create like a story around them mm-hmm. because like even if their movies are dramas like no country for old men mm-hmm. or straight up comedies like raising arizona at the center of these movies are these really fascinating unique characters mm-hmm. and so i think it's their their whole shtick is just like having great characters that people can really attach themselves to mm-hmm. and then just having the craziest story around it I think that's... I mean, that's what works best for their best movies. Yeah, like, definitely. Their best movies then, are, like, the best versions right. of that. But, but I feel I, like... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like sometimes they like jumping into text and the subtext with, like, testing the waters of Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. Or, like, doing something like, uh, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? 
Mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? Just really kind of just like experimenting with the form. I do think, obviously they're very into experimenting. and I think sometimes it works out better than other times. But I, I think like in this instance, like really what it feels like to me though, is that they were like working through their own shit and like, it was probably very cathartic to them and it like, from all accounts, like it helped them go back. They were like really stuck on the like complexity of writing Miller's Crossing. And after they like got this out, then they could like go back and like, that's when they finished writing Miller's Crossing. So I feel like this is very much them like working through their own stuff. But then because Raising Arizona and because Miller's Crossing were so big, the studios were just like, sure, whatever your next thing is, like do it. Right. And like, it feels like this movie like probably shouldn't have ever been put out because it was really just like their therapy, honestly, that they then like. I, I think in a, in a big, bad way, that is true. So. But somewhere I could, you know, I mean, I know we can say this about many movies. I think I said this to you before, but like, this is a group of people's favorite movie. You know what I mean? And there's reasons for that. I don't want to try to even try to wrap my head around it. Right. But I respect it. I respect it because I think this movie does do a lot of really interesting things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does some interesting things. I'm just, like, not interested in it, though. Right. No, I understand that. That's what I'm saying. I think, like, but for some people, this was probably their favorite movie for many great reasons, you know? Sure. If this is your favorite movie, listeners, please let us know why. Educate us. You sounded like you were reading from something and then just turned into conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's called a podcast, Kyle. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Do you want to... Do you have anything else you're going to say? Do you want to know what other people think about Barton Fink? I would love to know what other people think of Barton Fink. Well, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 89% and a critic score of 89%. The people and the critics are agreed. They're aligned. Um, so as far as its legacy, reaching for this one, um, it was voted the 11th best film of the 1990s in a poll of the AV Club contributors. IndieWire ranked it as the fifth best Coen Brothers movie. So there's that. And it made $6.2 million. Like I said, it uh, it bombed real big. That is a, that's a big bomb. So yeah, first of all, like the budget was $9 million. It lost, it lost, it money. lost money. That's not good. No. Probably $9 million went to it's like just sets. You know what I mean? It's just that fire, man. They had to burn a whole hallway. Well, it's true. The fire, but that hotel, like, I don't yeah, know what hotel, hotel they would shot in that looked that good. Do you know what I mean? You mean that looked that bad? Good. But no, good <laughs> but it looked, it looked preserved right. from a different era, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was probably just location and art direction that cost this movie so much money. It wasn't John Turturro's salary. <laughs> I don't think so. No. I don't think Roseanne had started yet, had it? I don't know. So it wasn't Roseanne John Goodman? <laughs> <laughs> John Goodman's really good in this oh, movie, Steve by the way. Oh, Steve Buscemi shit. <laughs> probably tanked it in his two scenes. He's literally, like, in that movie so much, but only shown twice. Yeah. Or wait, it might no, be... No, he's th- shown it, a few times. It time. might be three times. He's it like might be three times. coming through getting the shoes and stuff. He's in the beginning, he's in the shoe scene, and then... I, I honestly think that's it. I think he's in the beginning and the shoe scene. Mm-hmm. That's the only time you ever see him. You hear him on the phone, you hear him, like, talked about... I feel like Steve Buscemi is such a presence. You just feel him. I I think that's true, though. Steve Buscemi is is the shit. He is. Is the shit. Also, shout out to his brother in Black Klansman. (laughs) Yes. Because I was like, at first, I was like, is that Steve Buscemi? I was like, no, it's not. And then later in the credits, I was like, what? That's Buscemi? I thought, oh, God, no, I can't think of his name. The dude from like Jaws. You thought it was Roy Schneider? I did think it was Roy Schneider. Roy Schneider. Roy Schneider. 
Now I got so many names in my head. Because at first she said Rob Schneider. And I was like, what? You know, from Jaws, Rob Schneider. Roy. <laughs> well, I was going to say from all that jazz, but you haven't seen that. So. I know he's in that, though. That's him. That's what I always think of him in. Is that weird? It's probably weird for most people. I, I'm not weirded <laughs> out by it. Good. Because you're a big Bob Fosse fan. I am. They're doing. There's going to be a new show on FX about Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. Devin, no one cares who's listening I'm to this really podcast. About it. I'm, I'm sure, sure, I'm sure someone does. Are you serious? Yeah, she's playing Gwen Verdon. Oh, I love her. I know. I thought you might care. I mean, I do care. I was just kidding. I just didn't want to go on a whole Bob Fosse diatribe. All right. I'm sorry. Just cut all this out. And now going we're going to talk it's about. This is flowing so well. Okay. For our final movie we're going to talk about for this episode, Boys in the Hood, directed and written by John Singleton. Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. Please stop. Just cut that out. That was embarrassing. I will have to, I think. <laughs> I've seen it to Bees in the Trap. I think that's funny. Maybe stop talking. Okay. Can I tell you the synopsis? Yes. So synopsis uh, follows the lives of three young males living in the Crenshaw ghetto of Los Angeles, dissecting questions of race, relationships, violence, and future prospects. Such a fucking boring synopsis. I, I'm, I am going to write my own synopsis from now on. I like the IMDb synopsis. You know, what, you know what it's about? What? It's about growing up in the hood and making choices. Okay, I, you know I got I got to spend more time with it. Yeah, you work but, on uh, it. Well, I, well, I tell you a little background about Boys in the Hood. Sounds good. It was written and directed by John Singleton, and this was his debut film, first film he ever made. I think it's pronounced debut. I don't think it is. He was nominated for best director and best screenplay at the Oscars, so not not bad right out of the gate. And uh, his directorial nomination made him the youngest person ever nominated in that category, as well as the first African-American ever nominated for Best Director. He was 24, by the way, when he was nominated for this yeah, Best Director. That's very young. Yes, it is. It's very young. Okay. Singleton wrote the film based around his life growing up and events that either happened to him or people he knew. When applying for film school, one of the questions on the application form was to describe three ideas for films. One of the ideas Singleton wrote was a movie titled Summer of 84, which later evolved into Boys in the Hood. Uh, to maintain a sense of realism, uh, Singleton never wanted the actors to know when the shots would be fired. So he would just randomly do it to get their real reactions, which I thought was interesting. That's terrifying. Well, yeah. But I don't Sounds think like, honestly, harassment. Well, I don't think they were like actually like somewhere where there were shots being fired. I think they were like probably like Oh, they built those streets on the back lot on the back lot. Crenshaw, honestly. And here's a little on point but sad but sad piece of information. Actor Lloyd Avery II, who plays the gang member that shoots Ricky, became a member of the Bloods after the film's release. He was arrested in real life in connection with a double homicide, sentenced to life in prison, and killed on the evening of September 6th, 2005 by his cellmate. Oh, that's too bad. Isn't that too bad? Yeah. I just thought it was kind of like... I don't, why, point, I don't want you to bring it up on this podcast. Oh. It's the point that the movie's making. That's true, I guess. No, that is fair. That is fair. He didn't make the right choices. But he probably didn't have the right people in his life either, which I think is also a big factor in what this movie plays out to be. Yeah, I feel like, honestly, like, choices... I feel like this movie kind of, like, 
choices aren't as much of it as of like what your circumstances are. Right. Some of these people had better circumstances than others. And so mm -hmm. they got better outcomes, mm -hmm. you know, and there is Ricky and Doe, they, like they didn't even have dads around and they both had right. different dads. And then meanwhile, Trey has both of his parents, although be, they're not together, mm -hmm. but he definitely has a strong, I mean, a lot of this movie is about the, having a strong father in your life. Right. Um, which I'm, which I know John Singleton did have, and I think that reflected in this movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's that's two things to go show with that because we do follow for the for the most point Trey, mm -hmm. and then his friends, the brothers, uh, Ricky and Doughboy. But I feel like too, like with Ricky and Doughboy, like they have the same mom, but the film, like they're brothers, but the film makes like a clear distinction that Ricky was treated better than Doughboy. Yeah. Oh, and for sure. And that like Doughboy maybe was making the choices that he was making because he wasn't right. getting affection from his mother. Right. Like exactly. Exactly. I think, I think that's very much what it is. And I think it's too, like it, it points out like once you get into the system and you get into this cycle of violence and this cycle, it's really hard to get out of it. Like even just like living there, obviously like Ricky had like a minor altercation with some gang member and then ends up getting killed. You know what I mean? He like yeah. wasn't in a gang. He wasn't. Yeah. So, uh, so I feel like, I feel like that's interesting. Like it's, it's showing that there's, there's circumstantial things that can lead to, to these outcomes. There's choices can be made. And some of it is also just like mm -hmm. luck. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's hard for me to speak about cause this is such a different world from where I come from. Yeah. I know like throughout the movie, like the first half hour or so, I was just thinking like, man, this just seems like so amateur mm -hmm. in like a lot of ways. But then, like, by the end, I'm like, you know, I'm fucking glad it is. Because, like, one, who else was there to make this movie? Like, besides mm -hmm. Spike Lee being, like, the only prominent black film filmmaker in this era. But, like, who else was there? Like, I'm so glad a fresh voice got to, like, come into the picture and make this, like, kick-ass movie that, sure, for probably, like, most of its audiences was just, like, whatever... Like a, like a capture of their life and, and they weren't changed in any significant way. But like, I guarantee that a lot of the people that went to go see this movie being like younger and more impressionable, uh, black children are just minorities in general, like probably were affected by this movie and like got to just sit there for 90 minutes and kind of like look at something from the outside in. And I don't know, maybe make a positive change in their life. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if that's factual, but this is like one of the movies that certainly could do that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said that like in the beginning you felt like it was amateurish. Cause like John Singleton actually filmed it in sequence. Mm -hmm. And so he, like John Singleton said, like you can see the like camera work gets better through the film because he was uh, getting more comfortable. That's fine. I wasn't even thinking about it on technical levels though. It sure. was honestly more just like performances and dialogue. Well, that could, I mean, the same thing too, <laughs> though, if they're shooting in sequence, people no. are like getting more into it. No, sure, sure, as sure. As they shoot. But it was just like, I don't know, just, it felt like an end. But then at the, at the end, I'm just like, you know, like again, I'm just like, I'm glad it is this. Like, mm -hmm. I'm glad it's not a more polished has fucking like undeserving hands all over the movie that like helped John Singleton or some shit like that. Like I'm not trying to. Sure. Well, and that's, know. I guess cause you know, John Singleton obviously was very young and fresh out of film school. Yeah. And the only reason that this movie did get greenlit is because the studio wanted a movie like do the right thing. They were like, do the right thing did well, sure. get us one of those. But John Singleton said that he like fought really hard to be the one to direct it. Cause he was like, there's no way some like 
white dude is going to be able to like right. know what this is and right. to like do what has to be done with this. And I think that is super important. And you know, it's hard for me as, as a person who like didn't one, like really I was a child during the nineties. So I don't really, and I wasn't around in the eighties, but like, and as a white woman, like it's not anything that I know mm-hmm. about firsthand. And so there's like certain things to me, like there's certain aspects of it that I'm like, it feels a little like it was made for white people in a way. And I don't know, like, I don't know what it was like to be black, obviously in 1991, but you know, when they're like describing what gentrification is and like, you know what I mean? There's like a lot of like hmm, hand holding stuff that I don't know. See, I don't know about that because I think the whole, I think that it, where it goes with, uh, Lawrence Fishmore's character Furious is I think he he's trying to enlighten young black men who maybe don't see the problems around them because they're so isolated. Like, do you think do you back I mean? then like they didn't I think 100% fucking John Singleton was trying to shine a light on the black community. Exact I think John Singleton is furious in this movie. Like is the father figure. Sure. Where he's trying to show the audience who's like the younger kids in this movie, mm-hmm. like what is happening around them and that they need to open their eyes to certain things and not, you know, like, I mean, this movie does deal with like cops and, and, and young black men and whatnot, but like in a lot of the ways, it doesn't even, it's not even just a full, like the white man is trying to like bring you down. It's like, we have to see past our problems with other black men so we can like move on so we can make a better place for ourselves in this world. Because if we're hurting each other, then there's no way, you know, we're going to succeed. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But Fierce's whole point too, is that the white people want to keep them fighting each other because then they get killed off. I know. I know. I I mean, I think in a way it makes, it makes like white to be the villain, but I think it's just like the villain of this for this circumstance. It's like, it's, you need to open your eyes and see what's happening around you. Cause like, yeah, I'm just saying it's this petty bullshit that is like keeping us down. I guess my only like question is like, <coughs> if like people who lived in the hood came and saw this movie, were they learning anything or they were just like, yeah, I understand that life because that's what I live. Whereas I feel like when white people went to that movie, they were like, Oh fuck. You know what I mean? I mean, I would just never say that John Singleton made this movie for a white audience. Though, I'm, I'm not saying that he made it for a white audience. I'm saying that like there were certain aspects where I think he was like, talking to the white audience though. I mean I mean like maybe I mean I think that would probably be the best route to go but I don't think in any way him talking about gentrification was to white people like I think that was 100% like in like trying to draw attention to problems in the black community no I know I guess my only thing is like if you were living through gentrification don't you think you would understand gentrification Maybe if you're not paying attention to it, because I think that's yeah. what he was saying. He's like, he's like, I'm old enough and like educate myself on these topics. Like, I need to spread this to you. And they're like, yeah, shit, he's speaking the truth. Like, mm-hmm. because they're not realizing they're putting it together as he's talking, because that's what you need in life. You can't figure everything out for yourself. Sometimes you got to be nudged in the right direction. And I think that's like the role he was playing. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I understand that. And I definitely think that, like, obviously black people like responded to this film. And I think that it's important because it is depicting characters that don't get like full complex 
depictions right. in popular culture. Even today, I feel like you don't get. It. I mean, it's better, and I feel like this movie definitely like opened a lot of doors for subsequent films. But I also think that like it's so easy to just have like gang characters and they don't have. But like you feel for all these characters, whether they do bad things or not. Like they're all human beings, which in the end, like I will say they don't really make like even Doe, even like Doughboy Mm -hmm. played by Ice Cube. Like they never really make him a straight up villain. Like, yeah, he carries a gun and yeah, he acts tough, but he always has this like really positive message. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's mm-hmm. just trying to, like, not go back to jail. And he only, like, gets violent when it comes to his brother being attacked. You know what I mean? Like, it's right. just. In a way, it's like, I feel like it's not as complicated as it may, as maybe it could have been. You know what I mean? But sure. But at the same time, like, I mean, Ice Cube straight up kills people. Yes. And you feel for him. And you see in his, like, you see in his face and in his eyes at that moment that what he just did is not going to bring back his... Like, Ice Cube deserved a fucking Oscar nomination for he this really movie, did. in my opinion. He was so good in this movie. Right. I mean, if they were throwing, you know, like like if the Academy was, like, giving... Or even shining a light on this movie in some way, I hope it was for the right reasons, but, like, I don't know why Ice Cube couldn't got couldn't have got a little recognition. Yeah, no, for sure. He definitely deserved to be nominated. And they were all good. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I really enjoyed most of the performances. This was, it was Ice Cube's movie and Morris Chestnut's first movie. Oh, I didn't know. Has he been in other things? Morris Chestnut? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know his work. I'm sorry. I don't think, yeah, he makes a lot of like movies targeted towards black people. You know what? Actually, now that I think about it, I have seen like him in other stuff. I just never put two and two together. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this movie since high school, but damn, also holds up. It Very does. Very fucking relevant. I mean, I yeah. don't, again, I'm not going to say I know anything about the hood. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of the ideas addressed in the movie are still obviously very relevant today. Right. And I said, I guess like the point that I'm coming from is that like the part that doesn't feel as relevant is that I do think people are more, uh, to sound cliche and white as hell, more woke now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I just feel like people do have a better understanding of gentrification of yes. the, the obstacles that face young black men especially coming from the hood and that sort of thing. Like, I Mm -hmm. just think that like people do have a better grasp on that now, but like maybe that's because of movies like this and because people start, it started a conversation and a dialogue and whatever. Cause what's the line in the movie? Is it like, like ice cube at the end of the movie is talking about how he's watching the news this morning and it's about violence in the world. And it's Mm -hmm. like, he doesn't know why Compton is not being highlighted. If it's just because like people don't know or they don't want to show like black people and like Mm -hmm. what they're going through. And I feel very because like what right after this movie Rodney King and the fucking riots yeah, started so it's like, like right before the riots. You know what I mean? Like this was at the at the cusp of that like dude whole early nineties movie. I mean, motherfuckers like Ice Cube. <laughs> Sorry. Crazy motherfuckers. Crazy like motherfuckers like Ice Cube. No, like but I mean with with rap music and like the 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 big blow up of like gangster rap in like the late eighties and, and early nineties that really brought a lot of black problems to the mainstream. Yeah. It gave them a platform to talk about Right, in in media, in culture, you know what I mean? Not just like in history books or on the news, Mm -hmm. but like in popular culture. I think it was just the, this was really at the start of that in a way. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why it's, I think a lot of what it says, yeah, is relevant now because it's just so, it was there. Mm -hmm. It was there and it lived it. Mm -hmm. Well, like, it's interesting because like the Rodney King thing I was 
when I was doing my research, the the street corners, like you remember when the cop is like holding a gun to Ice Cube's head and being a dick, and then there's Not like a Ice Cube's head or, or I'm sorry, Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then there's a call over the radio of like a possible. 187 on the corners sure. of whatever those two well 187 whatever the code is it's like for murder and the street corners is literally a block away from where the riot the riding king riots started mm. less than like sure a few months later that's crazy they're crazy and like the point that you brought up about music though too leads me to like my second problem with this movie Uh-oh. is the score hmm. i think the score is really bad like i feel like the score is like makes it feel very like after school especially type thing Mm. and like i didn't look this up and i probably should have but like looking at the name in the credits definitely sounded like the composer was like a a white man and it just felt to me like and maybe this just like wasn't the style in the 90s or it just would have been too expensive because this was his first movie and blah blah but i really think this movie would have benefited from having rap music like a straight up soundtrack like having a soundtrack like rather, rather than, than a, score. a score yeah yeah, yeah. because the score just like didn't honestly fit i don't think that, but i also don't think that was a popular thing at the time that's what i'm saying i don't think yeah, that, that like, was a thing i think it was then. probably just an afterthought yeah because uh, i mean the credits there's a like ice cube does a song on the credits yeah and that was like yeah like that feels more like because the music that's playing under all these scenes i'm like these people would not be listening to music that sounded like this even if they had a score that was more like not so like flutey and shit like i just feel no, like yeah and, and Devin's not just talking about like you know emotional scenes it's just like literally like, like every scene yeah, there's music under music it which that is ties also everything like, together is just it's just yeah it's like violins and shit and like whatever yeah i just feel piano. like if you like recut this movie with just like nwa songs or some whatever well not because i guess he had a falling out with them but like <laughs> well i mean like if, if even if there was like more like non-diegetic stuff like just boombox on that porch right something to add a little flavor underneath right because i mean like yeah. when they're kids like he's wearing like a michael jackson like doughboy's wearing a michael jackson shirt well, like they couldn't afford that shit well i know they couldn't afford michael jackson. <laughs> i'm just saying that like <laughs> although in the night when did he lose all his money i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true um when did paul mccartney buy it? no that was the opposite <laughs> that was the other way sorry, but sorry. um no, but I mean, yeah, exactly. Like if they would have just had like people listening to music in the car on the boomboxes or like whatever, it would have sure. felt more realistic. Because sure. like every time that score came in, it just like took me out of it. Because I was like, is this a lifetime movie? That's, like what like, is that's this? That's such a good point that I bet John Singleton like regrets that. Like if he could go back yeah. and change the movie. Well, I'm sure he'd change a lot of things because who like, doesn't want to change their work? experienced after, filmmaker now. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I do think, I think that is one. But I mean like, Honestly, like that's, I think that's just a, it's a product of his time. It's one of the things that like, you know, movie trends come and go. And back then, yeah, back, I could talk about back then. Like it was not that long back ago, there. but I mean, it was 26 um, years ago, I know. But like, we talk about movies from like 1938 oh, that, and I'm just true. over here, like way back in 1991, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I think, I think this movie definitely has an important place in film history, if only because. You know, I read, like, I forget where I read it, but they're talking about, like, if you want to be, like, an ally and a spokesperson, like, the best thing you can do is, like, shine a light on the people who are talking about their own stories and sure, their own problems. Like, sure. don't, as a white person, don't try to speak for black people. Don't try to speak for gay people. You know what I mean? Like, just show, like, shine a light on the people that are speaking for themselves. And I feel like this movie is, like, the perfect example of that. Like, John Singleton was telling his story and he was able to tell it in his own way, in his own words, in his own visuals. And that's what makes it important. Really? It's his blood running through that movie. 
through mm-hmm. and through, and you can really feel that. And again, like I, I think I go back to the amateur comment, mm-hmm. but I think that's important. Well, I mean, it's the same thing too. Like when we talked about like, like the French new, like Jean Luc Godard and that kind of stuff. Like they didn't know how to make movies. You know what I mean? Like they were just yeah. like. I want to do this. And it turns out no masterpiece where it's like, I mean, obviously he went to film school. John Singleton knew what he was doing, but like mm-hmm. it's his first movie. And obviously your first movie probably is going to have some bumps right. along to it, but that's what makes and it you know feel what? more that, real. That guy was speaking of like, you know, you're talking about it's choices mm-hmm. and it's circumstance and it's luck. Mm-hmm. That yeah. guy, all three of those led to his success with this movie. That's very true. A lot of it being luck as you mentioned, like they wanted something like do the right thing, a hit, like do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he wouldn't have got that opportunity if, if Spike Lee or another black filmmaker hadn't made such a successful movie Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. And the success of this movie, I'm sure opened the doors for For sure. Well, ice cube and F Gary gray with Mm -hmm. Friday. Like, like that's a, that's a straight up example. Like that's, that's an example right there. Like Mm -hmm. that's a perfect example because I'm sure in some way this encouraged Ice Cube to take this acting thing or writing thing seriously because he wrote Friday. Yeah. And then F. Gary Gray, his music video director, gave him a shot at the feature. You know what I mean? Like, that's the shit. F. Gary Gray, I don't know a lot of John Singleton's work, but F. Gary Gray, like, that guy's all over the place and Mm -hmm. has made some really good shit. Yeah. I do feel like John Singleton, this is probably still, like, his biggest movie. Although he just did that, you know that show on FX, Snowfall? No. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I, it came out like a couple years ago. He's like the co creator. He created that. Okay. No, I believe he's working. I just don't know a lot of his work. Sure. But yeah. What did other people think, Devin? Oh, what's funny you should ask. Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes gave an audience score of 93% and a critic score of 96%. Hell yeah. Certified fresh. Um, as far as its legacy, it hasn't been named to a lot of lists, but it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 2002. The year it was first allowed to yeah yeah that's awesome before Thelma and Louise was at the box office it made 56.1 million dollars and while it was not in the top 10 of the year it was the most financially successful film of 1991 when compared to its 6.5 million dollar budget wow cool so it <laughs> if Barton Fink had made for that it would have broke even <laughs> they made a ton of money so yeah, it was Boys in the Hood. You know, now that we've talked about all three of these movies, like I do kind of want to like, none of these movies obviously were nominated for Best Picture. That's why we're talking about them in this bonus episode. Although some of them like were nominated for other awards. But I do think it's interesting that like two of these movies, one is about women as the central characters and one is black people as the central characters. And like both of those are the ones that got like shut out from picture nominations, although they did get directing nominations, but like, yeah, that's interesting. I think that that's very telling about where audiences are, like where the Academy stands on things, where audience stands on things of like what we expect movies to be like in a way. And so like these kind of like outliers, that's why they weren't, they weren't getting that recognition because they didn't look like Oscar movies. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, seeing these supplementals, uh, would you pick any of these to be nominated in place of other? Nom- Do you want me to remind you of what the nominees no, were? No, I know they're. Well, why don't I remind our listeners what the uh, nominees oh, yeah. were? <laughs> I forgot they're here. <laughs> Hi guys. So the nominees for 1991 were Prince of Tides, Bugsy, JFK, Beauty and the Beast, 
and the winner, The Silence of the Lambs. I think the best film still won. Okay. However, I think those two, the Thelma and Louise, the aforementioned Thelma and Louise and Boys in the Hood are more important than any of the other movies that were released that year. I don't want to say if one is better than the other or necessarily, but like I will say as far as like a significance in my opinion, I think both of those are far more important than Silence of the Lambs ever could hope to be. Very interesting. But I still think Silence of the Lambs is the best movie overall. Like, yes. I, again, like I think I said in the previous podcast, I think it is it is a near perfect movie, if not a perfect one. I think both Thelma and Louise and uh, Boys in the Hood have their faults. But again, as far as just cultural cultural relevance, anything, I think they're more important. I agree. I would say, I mean, like I'll go ahead and name names. I'm not afraid. I would bump out Bugsy and JFK. Oh, sure, sure. In terms of nominations to get Thelma and Louise and Boys in the Hood in there. Because I do think that, I mean, I think that they've had a longer lasting cultural relevance than Bugsy and JFK. I mean, like, I just think that they have. just make it easier and pretend that the animated care the animated category was already created by them. Let's just throw Beauty and well, the Beast. Well, I'm not throwing Beauty and the Beast out because honestly, <laughs> that movie also has a lasting cultural impact. <laughs> All right. So, especially in the world of animation, because it like was groundbreaking in its sure. use of CGI. Okay, Devin. I and wasn't... groundbreaking in my All personal right. life as <laughs> a know, human being. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but no, I would agree. I think Silence of the Lambs is the better movie. But if I were like, what movie do I want to rewatch immediately? It, um, it'd probably be Thelma and Louise. <laughs> Not so. Silence of the Lambs. That's I'm just saying, like, if if all of those movies, it's like, oh man, dude, how many movies did we watch? Eight. Yeah. Dude, six of them are getting destroyed in this fire. We only mm-hmm. we can only carry two movies out of here. It would be Boys in the Hood and Thelma and Louise for sure for me. Interesting. It have to be like they're the only like. I don't Silence know. of the Lambs is really good though. It is really good, but who's gonna fucking miss it if they didn't exist? Like, I think Thelma and Louise are, and. And Boys in the Hood are, are important for other reasons besides just being good movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like those are the ones that should survive and future generations should see. Then fucking Hannibal Lecter being awesome. like <laughs> Fair. I wouldn't go that far, though. But <laughs> <laughs> well, baby, feel free. Feel, or feel at ease. In this fire, mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast is protected because that's locked away in the Disney that's vault. That's in the Disney vault. So. Which no fire can, can harm that's anything down there. Proof. So, Okay, well, all right then. As long as I get to keep Beauty and the Beast because that movie is very important I understand. to me. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I think we're agreed Silence of the Lambs still is the deserving winner, but we would probably. Yeah. But don't we don't discount the importance of Thelma and Louise and Boys in the Hood. Sounds like we are discounting Barton Fink, though. Is that <laughs> Yeah, I think we are. Okay. I'm sorry for picking that one. <laughs> All, right. All right, so that's it. Uh, join us next week. We're going to have a brand new regular episode uh, with some real old-ass movies. So join Yay. us then. Bye.